Good afternoon, everybody. Uh, the nominations hearing of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee will come to order. Uh, congratulations to each of you on your nominations and for your ongoing service uh, to our country um, and commitment to our country. Uh, I also want to thank the family members uh, who have joined you uh, today and feel free to also introduce them uh, when you provide your testimony. Um, I grew up in a foreign service family. I'm aware that this is a family endeavor uh, and we're grateful to all of your loved ones uh, for traveling across the globe with you in many instances. Um, in the interest of giving all of you, uh, our nominations, uh, more time to answer questions, uh, Senator Romney and I have agreed that we're gonna forego any opening statements. Uh, that said, I think you've been told if you could keep your state opening statements to three minutes, uh, it would be much appreciated uh, given the current congressional schedule. Uh, I do want to say at the outset that I know a lot of chiefs of mission are here in Washington right now, uh, and I've been hearing from them about how much they value the work done by Foreign Service Nationals in our embassy and consulates abroad and how they could not do their good work and you could not do your good work uh, without their support. I raise that because uh, these individuals put themselves at great risk. Uh, we had a um, number of members of our Foreign Service family killed in the line of duty in Nigeria not that long ago. Uh, we have a commitment to them that after a long period of long and faithful service, uh, they can emigrate to the United States with their families. Uh, but right now, even after they serve 20 years, there's a 17-year waiting period, which is why Senator Tillis and I have introduced bipartisan legislation called the Grateful Act uh, that I hope uh, will pass through this uh, Senate um, as quickly as uh, possible. Um, with that, uh, let me uh, also welcome Senator uh, Ricketts, Senator Haggerty, uh, and now I'm going to, unless, unless you have any opening remarks. No opening comments other than uh, what you're doing is more important than uh, it's been in a long, long time. Uh, when I was a young man, we were uh, competing with the Soviet Union and the members of our uh, various uh, foreign delegations, our ambassadors and so forth, were playing a very active role and a key role in, uh, in promoting our interests. And today we're competing with authoritarians generally. And authoritarianism is on the rise, according to a number of people who follow that and the work that you're doing takes on a special significance at this time. And I appreciate your willingness to step forward no. and that of your families. And with that, Mr. Chairman, please introduce our well, well, panelists. Well, thank you. Um, thank you, Senator Romney. And uh, we have a number of uh, members, senators, uh, who want to introduce um, a number of you. And so in the interests of, of their convenience, I'm gonna start with them, unless Senator Haggerty would like me to introduce some of those Others first. It's up to you. I know you're here to introduce um, uh, one of our nominees. Well, um, Chairman Van Hall, I, I would very much appreciate it if it's uh, if it's okay sure. to please go ahead proceed. and make an introduction of somebody who um, I had the great pleasure of working with when I served as U.S. Ambassador to Japan. Um, Joel Ehrendreich, uh was my Consul General to Okinawa and did a fantastic job. He's now here before us today to be hopefully our next U.S. Ambassador to Palau. So uh, it's my great honor to introduce him, and thank you for giving me the opportunity to do so. Uh, throughout Joel's impressive 20-year career, he's held significant positions in Tokyo, New Delhi, Singapore, Manila, and Sydney. 
And he's been the foreign policy advisor to someone whom we both admire greatly, General Neller, who was Commandant of the Marine Corps and I had the great pleasure to work with in a prior life. All of this experience, I believe, has imbued Joel with a deep understanding of the regional dynamics of the Indo-Pacific, and I feel certain that Joel is going to do a tremendous job if he is confirmed. As I mentioned, I had the pleasure of working with Joel when I served as U.S. Ambassador to Japan, and he served as Consul General to Okinawa. In working together, Joel and I handled a number of highly sensitive diplomatic issues related to our military presence in Okinawa related to the strategic positioning of Okinawa and, frankly, relative to the CCP's pressure on Okinawa. In each case, Joel demonstrated himself, as he has throughout his career, to be adept both at protecting and advancing America's national security interests abroad. In fact, Joel was the first person to suggest that my family and I attend the Hiroshima Peace Memorial Ceremony. It's a very important statement that we made as America, and I appreciate Joel's sensitivity to that issue and him bringing it to my attention. Most recently, as the director of the State Department's Office of Japanese Affairs within the Bureau of East Asia and Pacific Affairs, Joel is involved in, in negotiations that are aimed at strengthening and modernizing the alliance as Japan's government pursues new national security strategies and an increased investment in defense. And during the course of his career, Joel has received numerous prestigious awards, including the Rifkin Award for Constructive Dissent. Joel's also demonstrated a special knack for baseball diplomacy. I've seen this in action. Uh, notably, he organized the first ever embassy diet baseball game, forming a team with U.S. generals in Okinawa. He established a Little League team in India, and he even served as an umpire for the Little League Asia-Pacific qualifying tournament in Manila during 2013 and 2014. I know that Joel loves the Milwaukee Brewers, and Joel was quite pleased to inform me that the Brewers' AAA team is our very own Nashville Sounds in Nashville, Tennessee, my home state. Joel's passion for baseball is also evident in his son's names, Cooper and Calvin, who are respectively named for Cooperstown and Cal Ripken, with each of their middle names paying tribute to the legendary Jackie Robinson. I hope today that the committee will come to know Joel as I do, as someone who brings solid and relevant experience, as someone with a track record of achieving results for our country, and as someone, someone who will leave it all on the field if he's confirmed to serve as America's ambassador to Palau. Palau's location in the Western Pacific Ocean holds significant strategic importance given the CCP's aggressive moves in the region. It's situated at the crossroads of major maritime routes. Palau serves as a critical gateway between Asia and the Americas. I know Joel will diligently work to deepen U.S.-Palau defense and economic cooperation under the Compact of Free Association, especially at this critical time for U.S. national security in the Indo-Pacific. From my personal experience, I believe Joel will make an outstanding ambassador. So I urge you all in joining me to support his confirmation today. Thank you. Thank you, Senator Haggerty. Welcome, Mr. Arendike. And now I'm going to um, introduce um, some of our other nominees who are here today and, until our other colleagues um, arrive. Um, and Cynthia Kirst, uh, congratulations on being nominated as ambassador to the Republic of Djibouti. Um, Ms. Kirscht is a career member of the Senior Foreign Service. Uh, she serves as ambassador to the Islamic Republic of Mauritania. Uh, and Ambassador Kirscht was previously Deputy Assistant Secretary in the State Department's Bureau of Western Hemisphere Affairs and the Director of the Bureau's Office of Canadian Affairs. She has served across Africa in embassies from Rabat to Cairo 
and the newly established U.S. intersection in Tripoli. Her career has also taken her to Bogota in Colombia, uh, where she held position, such positions as Deputy Management Counselor, Cultural Affairs Officer, and Coordinator for the Summit of the Americas. Welcome, Ambassador Kirsten. We look forward uh, to your testimony uh, once all the introductions are complete. Uh, next, let me introduce uh, Mark Libby. Mark Libby has been nominated to be our American Ambassador to Azerbaijan. Uh, he's a career member of the Senior Foreign Service. He serves as a State Department faculty advisor at the National War College in Washington. Previously, he was Deputy Chief of Mission and Chargé d'Affaires at the U.S. Mission to the European Union in Brussels. He's also served as a political counselor at our embassies in Warsaw, Nassau, uh, Nicosia, and Baghdad. Here in Washington, uh, he has served as a watchstander and later Deputy Director for Crisis Management in the State Department Operations Center. I had an opportunity to visit it briefly uh, just last week. Uh, he's also served as a director uh, of the office, the deputy director in the Office of Central European Affairs, director of the Office of Southern European Affairs, director of orientation at the Foreign Service Institute, as well as spending time on the State Department Secretariat staff. Uh, welcome, uh, Mr. Libby. Uh, now, since we don't have our other members here yet, uh, they are going to be free to say a few words when, when they arrive, but I'm going to go ahead and uh, introduce the other um, members uh, who are here. Uh, let me begin with you, um, Nisha Desingh Biswal, uh, who was nominated, has been nominated by the President to serve as Deputy CEO of the U.S. International Development Finance Corporation. She has over 30 years of foreign policy and international development experience, having served in roles across the executive branch, Congress, and the private sector. She currently serves as the Senior Vice President for International Strategy and Global Initiatives at the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, where she oversees the U.S. India Business Council and U.S. Bangladesh Business Council. Uh, she ser previously served as Assistant Secretary for South Asia and Central Asian Affairs at the State Department, from 2013 to 2017, and during her tenure as Assistant Secretary, she initiated the C5 plus one dialogue with Central Asia and the U.S.-Bangladesh Partnership Dialogue. Welcome, Ms. Biswal. Uh, next, we have Mr. Edward Kagan, uh, who is nominated to serve as our ambassador to Malaysia. Uh, he is a career member of the Senior Foreign Service, a class of minister counselor. He currently serves as Special Assistant to the President and Senior Director for East Asia and Oceania at the National Security Council. His career has taken him to U.S. embassies in New Delhi and Kuala Lumpur, where he served as Deputy Chief of Mission. He has also served overseas in Australia, China, Israel, Hungary, and Cote d'Ivoire. Prior to his Deputy Chief of Mission roles, he served as Deputy Assistant Secretary for Australia, New Zealand, and the Pacific in the State Department's Bureau of East Asian and Pacific Affairs and as Consul General at the U.S. Consulate General in Mumbai, India. He was also Deputy Director of the Washington Office of the U.S. Mission to the United Nations and Director of Korean Affairs and Acting Deputy Assistant Secretary for Japan and Korea in the Bureau of East Asia and Pacific Affairs. So welcome to all of you. Um, I 
think I've everyone has been introduced now. Um, so why don't I turn it over uh, to all of you for your testimony, beginning with Ambassador Kirst. Chairman Ben Holland, Ranking Member Romney, di distinguished members of the committee, I am honored to appear before you as President Biden's nominee to serve as the U.S. Ambassador to the Republic of Djibouti. I am grateful to the President and the Secretary of State for the confidence they have placed in me with this nomination. If confirmed, I look forward to working closely with this committee and with the Congress more broadly to advance American interests in Djibouti. Mr. Chairman, I would first like to express my gratitude for the love and support of my family, friends, and colleagues throughout my career. In particular, I would like to recognize my mother, Dr. Marcia Kirscht, here with me today, who has been an excellent role model, best friend, and who has visited me at every post. And my late grandmother, Cynthia Selland, who as a North Dakota public school teacher for 45 years taught geography, from whom I no doubt got much inspiration for this journey. I am also grateful for the love and support of my brother Matthew and his family, Brenda and Kennedy, and to the great team at U.S. Embassy Nouakchott who are streaming this live at the Embassy. My deepest thanks for your support. It has been my honor and privilege for more than 32 years of public service to represent the American people, protect American citizens, and promote American interests overseas as a career member of the Foreign Service. If confirmed, I will proudly lead our interagency team in Djibouti on behalf of the United States leveraging my experience in North Africa and the Sahel, in Egypt, Libya, Tunisia, Algeria, Morocco, and most recently as U.S. Ambassador to Mauritania. Djibouti holds significant strategic importance for the United States. Its location at the mouth of the Red Sea makes it the trade and humanitarian gateway for the Horn of Africa. Djibouti has been a key partner in U.S. efforts to improve security and stability in the region, including hosting Camp Lemonnier, the U.S. military's only enduring presence on the African continent. Our military presence in Djibouti is particularly critical to ensuring the safety of our missions in Africa, as recently illustrated by the successful evacuation of U.S. Embassy staff from Sudan. Djibouti has been a strong partner to the United States in upholding the rules-based international order at the United Nations and in other multilateral fora. And as host of the Intergovernmental Authority for Development, Djibouti plays a leading role in the region. Djibouti is also a key location for the United States to work with strategic partners in Africa and the Western Indian Ocean to counter efforts by other nations, such as the People's Republic of China, to undermine the rules-based order. If confirmed, I will work hand-in-hand -hand with the full spectrum of the U.S. government to protect American national security interests in Djibouti. Over the past several years, Djibouti has faced economic headwinds from the pandemic, the disruption to global shipping, the conflict in northern Ethiopia, and the resulting reduction in trade through Djibouti's ports, and the historic drought affecting millions in the region. The Djiboutian people have shown remarkable resilience in the face of these multiple crises, and in spite of these challenges, the economy is showing potential, driven by the Djiboutian government's strategy to diversify and engage private sector-led growth. If confirmed, I am committed to working with the U.S. private sector and government colleagues to support Djibouti's sustainable development and pro provide U.S. alternatives to investment by our strategic competitors. Mr. Chairman, protecting U.S. national security and advancing our interests in the region requires a secure, prosperous, and democratic Djibouti. If confirmed, I am committed to working with the U.S. agencies and like-minded allies to promote the ideals of good governance including in advance of its 2026 presidential elections. The United States has enjoyed a strong relationship with the Republic of Djibouti for decades, 
and I see potential for even stronger ties as we work together towards a more secure, prosperous, and democratic future for all. If confirmed, I will work with the embassy team to build on their efforts to partner with the Djiboutians to advance regional peace and security, support sustainable economic development, strengthen democratic institutions, and promote good governance while ensuring critical access and influence for our broader regional security efforts. Mr. Chairman, Ranking Member, and members of the committee, thank you for considering my nomination. I welcome your questions. Thank you for your statement. Um, Mr. Ehrendreich. Chairman Van Hollen, Ranking Member Romney, and members of the committee, good afternoon. I'm honored to appear before you today and grateful for the confidence shown by the President and Secretary Blinken in nominating me to be Ambassador to the Republic of Palau. I want to give a special thank you to Senator Haggerty, uh, someone who I greatly admired as ambassador and whose mentorship I am grateful for. You honored me, uh, Senator Ambassador, with that uh, introduction. I would also like to take a moment to thank my loved ones uh, who are here today, my sons, Cooper and Calvin, uh, both of whom I'm so proud of and who have brought me joy every day of their lives, and happy birthday, Calvin. My daughter-in-law, Netta, who has been a wonderful addition to the family, and our newest wonderful addition, our grandson, Zane. And of course, Rachel, my wife of 33 years, my love, my soulmate, the person who makes me a better person. I also want to thank my brother Josh, my in-laws Jackie and Scott Alter, my mother-in-law Janice McClellan. I am truly blessed to have so many wonderful people in my life. And here I am also compelled to try to right a wrong. In my official nomination bio, it mentioned where I was born, Omaha, Nebraska. Uh, but it left out where I grew up in the place that I still consider home to this day, Milwaukee, Wisconsin. So a shout out to the town I love and to all of my friends there. And if I could add just one special request from my fellow Whitefish Bay High School alum, Milwaukee Brewers manager Craig Council, if you could sprinkle just a little extra of that magic on the Brewers this season, I would love it just one time before I die to know what it feels like to cheer for the World Series champion. <laughs> all right. Senators, a couple of weeks ago when we concluded the 2023 Compact Review Agreement with Palau, Palau's president, Sarango Whip, said, on his Facebook page, God bless Palau, God bless the United States of America, God bless us all. I share President Whip's enthusiasm for our partnership and potential for our future. I believe the United States and Palau have a real convergence of interests at this time, and if confirmed, I, I am eager to continue to advance our special relationship. To do so, I would first turn to our national security strategy and Indo-Pacific strategy. These documents describe in no uncertain terms that the United States faces unprecedented challenges from the People's Republic of China. We have seen that while the PRC's provocative actions span the globe, they are most acute in the Indo-Pacific. The strategies highlight the importance of enhancing our relationships with allies and partners to include a specific focus on deepening ties with Pacific Island countries. Regarding the 2023 Compact Re Review Agreement, I urge Congress to quickly take up the relevant implementing legislation appropriate funds, and allow for the entry into force of the agreement. If confirmed, I would work to ensure both sides live up to the obligations made in the new agreement, which will enhance our relationship for the next 20 years and beyond. I would also point to our embassy's uh, integrated country strategy, which cites the need to address Palau's top priority, the existential threat from rising sea levels and increasing natural disasters, the people of Palau are counting on their partner, the United States and the international community to unite with them in confronting this challenge. 
If confirmed, I would continue to work closely with the government of Palau and others uh, to support disaster preparedness and response. Mr. Chairman, uh, Mr. Ranking Member, members of the committee, uh, thank you again for your consideration and the opportunity to appear before you today. I look forward to your questions and comments. Uh, thank you, uh, Mr. Erdenreich. And um, while you have something in your prayers, can you put a plug in for the Orioles too? Uh, all right. Mr. Libby. Thank you, uh, <clears throat> Mr. Chairman. Um, Ranking Member Romney, distinguished members of the committee, I appreciate the confidence President Biden and Secretary Blinken have placed in me by nominating me to be the next U.S. Ambassador to Azerbaijan, and it's a great priv privilege to appear before you today. If I'm confirmed, I pledge to work closely with this committee and with all members of Congress to advance U.S. interests in and with Azerbaijan. I first would like to introduce my wife, Danusha, who joins me as we celebrate our 26th wedding anniversary this summer. Polish by birth, a naturalized U.S. citizen, Danusha is an American by choice. She inspires me with her patriotism through decades of behind-the-scenes public service, training U.S. diplomats in some of the world's most strategically important foreign languages. She's a wonderful mother to our wonderful son, Andrew, who is also here today, together with his partner, Sophie Prager. Missing today are my father, Pete, who died 12 years ago, my sister, Diane, brother, Stephen, and mom, Marjorie. Their love has sustained me throughout my life. I'd also like to acknowledge the teams at Georgetown University Hospital here in Washington and the Dana-Farber Cancer Institute in Boston. They have cured me of disease repeatedly since I was 20 years old, and I literally owe them my life. Thanks to them, I'm able to be here today, and I've been able to serve my country for so many years. All U.S. diplomats have a core duty to protect American citizens, and if I am confirmed, that will be my top priority. In my three decades of public service, I have seen the persistence of and sacrifices made by U.S. Foreign Service, Civil Service, military, and other interagency partners, and by our locally engaged staff, as you pointed out, Mr. Chairman. These dedicated colleagues often face danger and hardship to safeguard their fellow Americans and to pursue U.S. national interests. If I am confirmed, it will be the honor of a lifetime to lead the team at Embassy Baku in pursuit of those same goals. If confirmed, I will also support U.S. efforts to facilitate a just and sustainable peace agreement between Azerbaijan and Armenia. This tragic conflict has produced a bitter legacy of pain and mistrust. I know many members of this committee have concerns about Azerbaijan. I share and understand them. Solving issues of territorial integrity, sovereignty, and the rights and securities of everyone in the region, including those residing in Nagorno-Karabakh, is vital to any durable and dignified peace. There is no military solution to this conflict, and the, U the U.S. must continue to condemn violence or threats of violence. But with the help of the United States and of our European partners, the parties are closer than ever to reaching an agreement. And if I am confirmed, I commit to help to get them there through active and persistent engagement in Baku. But signing a peace deal is only the first step. If I'm confirmed, I will lead Embassy Baku's interagency team to support the implementation of an eventual settlement. Successful implementation of a peace agreement would pave the way for deeper ties between the U.S. and Azerbaijan that will stabilize the region and thwart hostile competitors who seek to expand their malign influence by capitalizing on conflict. A peace deal would allow us to take to the next level much of what already works well in our relationship with Azerbaijan. Cooperation in counterterrorism, border security, energy security, and maritime security serves the U.S. national interest and in security. 
If confirmed, I will redouble our efforts in these areas. I will seek to foster further economic development and create more numerous and diverse opportunities for U.S. companies to compete and generate jobs at home. Democracy and human rights are core to U.S. foreign policy, not just because they reflect our values, but because they have proven to be the best foundation for peace and prosperity. If confirmed, I pledge to engage in a respectful but very frank dialogue with a wide range of Azerbaijani leaders and citizens and to advocate persistently for those values, rights, and freedoms in Azerbaijan and in the wider region. If confirmed, I will work in full and open consultation with this committee, which has shown such leadership advancing our values and interests in this complex region. I commit to cooperation with you to advance our goals of a stable, democratic, peaceful, and prosperous Azerbaijan that is a strategic partner to the United States. Thank you for your time, and I look forward to your questions. Thank you, uh, Mr. Libby. I, I see we've been joined by Senator Warner um, and Senator Kane, who's a member of the committee. Uh, Senator Warner is here to say a few words uh, on behalf of um, Ms. Desai um, Biswal. And uh, Senator, uh, we've gone through the bios of all of our, our nominees, and so we understand their credentials. Um, but we would love to have some personal testimony as why you think this uh, nominee is um, important to the country. Well, thank you, Mr. Chairman, and I apologize. Senator Kane and I were um, um, away on another issue that uh, you care very dear dearly about as well, and we were uh, standing up for your your interests. And I, I would not, though, have been if I'd realized, I have to tell you, that Senator Romney on this subcommittee was actually ranking member, I would have never been late. That matter would have been put aside. So, um, you know, we've got a very distinguished group of, of of uh, nominees here. Nisha, I've known literally for years. Um, I've known her when she worked in the Obama administration, had the expertise to deal with um, all of the issues around South Asia. Uh, her prior time at AID and American Red Cross, she brings a distinguished governmental career. Um, but she also brings uh, enormous activities. Probably where I got to know her the, the most was when she went over on the business side and worked for USIBC. Um, matter of fact, Senator Corn and I, we were still the co-chairs of the India Caucus, the largest uh, single country caucus in, in the Senate, 42 members, bipartisan. Nisha did a great, great job at USIBC. Um, and so I can recommended without reservation, and particularly because I think uh, the position she's nominated for as being helping our friend Scott Nathan over at DFC. DFC, uh, I think, is one of the, the real assets we have, particularly as we compete against China on issues like Belt and Road and others. We can't simply do it with um, you know, military and other sports. We have to have a strong, active uh, international finance organization um, that can go toe-to-toe -to -toe with, with uh, um, against Belt and Road and against other initiatives. And as we all know, our country on a per capita basis does much, much smaller than um, most other first world nations. And Nisha will bring that combination of both business side, AID side, she started her career at the American Red Cross. She served in the administration. No one is better situated for this position. I just met with the senior leadership of DFC um, last week as we look at some of this technology competition. There are a host of, of deals and areas that they um, are trying to pursue 
uh, that Nisha would add, you know, value day one. So I hope not only do I recommend her, but I hope the committee will act with great speed in in uh, moving her her through. And I know she will have um, uh, I've talked to a number of, of folks who've dealt with her as well in the past, broad bipartisan support. And with that, I will defer to my colleague, Senator Kane, who's here for somebody else, but he was going to put a, you're going to put a good word in for Nisha as well, aren't you, Tim? Thank you, Senator Warner. Uh, Senator Kane, let's... Uh, well, I guess I better put in a good word for Nisha. Um, now, we, we've worked together very well, and I'm strongly supportive. Echo what Senator Warner said. I was asked to say a few words about another proud Virginian, Edgar uh, Kagan, who's nominated to be the ambassador to Malaysia. And Mr. Chair, mindful of the notion that you've already gone through the bio, just really quickly, I mean, th this is a tremendously talented um, uh, public servant who has already served once in Malaysia as DCM as well as DCM in India. Um, he currently is the um, senior director for East Asia and Oceania at the National Security Council at the White House. And he's the kind of person that makes me feel like a complete underachiever in life because he is a recipient of a Presidential Meritorious Award, speaks French, Mandarin, Chinese, Hungarian, Spanish, not the easiest languages uh, to master, but he has. The, the, the challenges of trying to deal with China in the region are, are very, very significant, and Malaysia can be very critical in helping us deal with those challenges, and that's what he's been doing already, so he's eminently qualified for the post, and I'm glad to say a word on his behalf. Thank you. Thank you, uh, Senator Kane. I, I do want the record to show what, what deference this Maryland senator showed to my colleagues from the other side of the Potomac River. Um, with that, uh, Mr. Kagan. Certainly. Chairman Van Hollen, Ranking Member Romney, distinguished members of the committee, thank you so much for the opportunity to appear before you today. It is an honor to do so as President Biden's nominee for the position of United States Ambassador to Malaysia. And I'm grateful to the President and to Secretary Blinken for their confidence. I'm also grateful to State Department colleagues, past and present, who've given me a lifelong education in diplomacy and public service. I've spent 32 years in the Foreign Service, 14 of which were representing the United States in the Indo-Pacific. But across the six administrations in which I've served, I've seen the critical role of cooperation and alignment with Congress. If confirmed, I commit to working with you and the Congress as a whole to advance U.S. strategic interests in Malaysia, ASEAN, and the Indo-Pacific. I am so happy to be accompanied today by my family. My mother, Peggy Kagan, is here, joined by my sister, Dr. Isabel Kagan, it's up to you. You want to go? Um, both visiting from Lexington, Kentucky. Also here are my wife, Cynthia Geyer, and my children, Marshall, and sophie and Daniel. Um, They've shared the challenges, pleasures, and opportunities of living in six cities in five countries on three continents. For our children, that has meant attending nine schools. I'm far luckier than I deserve and could not be here today without their love, support, and forbearance. Um, sadly, my father, Jacques Kagan, passed away last year. He would have been so proud to have seen this day. I became familiar with Malaysia when I served there as Deputy Chief of Mission from 2014 to 2017. If confirmed, I would look forward to building on our strong relationship in several key areas. First, we are one of Malaysia's largest foreign investors, and our bilateral trade last year supported an estimated 58,000 U.S. jobs. If confirmed, I would prioritize further strengthening our economic ties. Second, the United States and Malaysia work together to combat terrorism and transnational crime and to promote maritime security. I will continue to support these shared priorities if confirmed. Third, standing for our values is at the heart of America's global role. 
If confirmed, I will work to strengthen the rule of law, transparency, good governance, and respect for human rights in Malaysia. I'm particularly concerned about human trafficking, including forced labor and migrant, labor, migrant worker rights. I will work with Malaysia on these issues if confirmed. None of this, however, can be accomplished without the amazing U.S. Embassy team in Kuala Lumpur. I will make their safety and that of U.S. citizens my highest priority if confirmed. Mr. Chairman, uh, Ranking Member, members of the committee, the U.S.-Malaysia partnership is strong. I believe it can grow even stronger. If confirmed, working closely with Congress, I will do all I can to strengthen this relationship. Thank you, and I welcome your questions. Thank you, uh, Mr. Kagan. Uh, Ms. Biswell. Chairman Van Hollen, Ranking Member Romney, members of the committee, thank you so much for this opportunity to appear before you today as the nominee for Deputy CEO of the United States International Development Finance Corporation. I'm deeply honored and humbled by the nomination and grateful for the trust placed in me by the President for this important role. I particularly want to thank Senator Warner for his friendship and support. Having grown up in Virginia, I consider it my home state, and we are blessed to have exceptional leadership in Senator Warner and Senator Kane. I'm here today with my husband, Subrat. He is my rock and my North Star. Our two daughters, Safia and Kaya, who are the light of my life, and my father, Kanu. It is their unflagging belief in me and that of my mother and my in-laws and my extended family that makes all things possible, and I am ever grateful for their love. Our extended family and friends are watching online, and I also want to thank my colleagues at the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, both in the room and online, uh, from whom I have learned so much. I'm grateful for the opportunity to return to public service, if confirmed. I learned the importance of service at a very early age from my grandparents, who took part in India's fight for independence and who served time in British jails. My grandparents saw public service as the highest of callings, an investment in country and community, and they instilled those values in me. In Congress, at USAID, in the State Department, and most recently with the Chamber of Commerce, my own career in public service has allowed me to work at the nexus of foreign policy, development, and economic interests. DFC represents the amalgamation of all of those experiences and an opportunity to apply the lessons I have learned. Mr. Chairman, I first want to commend this body and your colleagues in the House for passing the BUILD Act. In establishing DFC, Congress sought to create a best-in-class development finance agency that will both advance U.S. strategic interests and create positive development impact in the countries in which it operates. We have seen how the lack of access to adequate financing has led many developing nations to lean too heavily on state capital from authoritarian nations, often at unsustainable and predatory rates that yield poor development outcomes and undermine their sovereignty. The BUILD Act has enabled the United States to offer a more compelling finance alternative, one that is consistent with our values and catalyzes private investment. If confirmed, I will work with our outstanding CEO, Scott Nathan, and the DFC staff to advance three key pillars. Enhancing our strategic focus, 
advancing impact-driven investments, and focusing on collaboration and partnership. And Mr. Chairman, if confirmed as Deputy CEO of DFC, I am committed to working collaboratively with Congress and other key stakeholders to fulfill the mission of DFC. I am ready to serve the American people in this critical role, and I thank you for your time and consideration and look forward to your questions. Thank you, Ms. Biswell, and thank all of you for your testimony here, and now we'll start a period of, of questioning. And um, Mr. Kagan, if I could start with you. Um, Malaysia is home to the largest rare earths processing facility outside of the PRC. And recent reports um, show that Malaysia is also home to deposits of strategic and criminal, excuse me, critical minerals, including tin. Uh, as we look to our ongoing efforts to both uh, friend shore um, and develop uh, more stable supply chains uh, of critical minerals and rare earth minerals. What role can you play uh, if you're confirmed as our ambassador to Malaysia? Thank you very much for your question, Mr. Chairman. Uh, I think the question of rare earths and more broadly critical minerals is one that is a very high priority to this country. Um, and I think that you've seen that the administration has done a considerable amount of work on this. I think that the uh, importance of working on these arrangements with countries where we have good relationships and trying to develop new sources so that we can have reliable supply chains and diversified supply chains is absolutely critical. And I think that we have real potential to do that in countries like Malaysia. So if confirmed, I would want to work closely with the American private sector, with different parts of the US government, and with the Malaysian government to ensure that we're able to continue expanding the areas of cooperation in this, support development of resources, and above all, make sure that we do this in partnership with Malaysia in ways that are sustainable and that promote our values. Thank you, sir. No, I appreciate that. I was um, recently on a, a trip with Senator Merkley, and we stopped in Indonesia, where this is also, as you know, a very uh, important issue. Um, Ms. Biswell, let me turn to you. Uh, the DFC, as you described uh, well, is a critical uh, agency uh, to our efforts uh, to in invest overseas in a way that also strengthens our supply chains, uh, serves American interests and those of our partners uh, overseas. Um, that Scott, Nathan, and I think you would make a great team. Uh, let, me, let me ask you about an issue that's a, a little bit of inside baseball, but very important, uh, which is the issue of how we currently, we, the Congress and our, our budget agencies, score the DFC. Um, I'm sure you're familiar with this issue. Uh, we are having a debate here in Congress right now. Senator Coons has introduced a bill, I'm a co-sponsor, to try to make sure that we get all the, all the punch that we can out of the DFC. Could you, could you talk a little bit about that issue and the importance of resolving it? Uh, sure, thank you, Mr. Chairman. I believe you're referring to, per, in particular, the scoring with, uh, with respect to equity uh, yes. financing at DFC. Um, Congress and the BUILD Act provided DFC with authority to do equity investment in order to ensure that we could, uh, that DFC could invest in uh, countries where perhaps um, debt financing was not as uh, much of an option. And 
I believe that in so doing created an opportunity for DFC to uh, create more compelling investments uh, in perhaps sometimes riskier uh, regions. However, the lack of um, scoring or, or the inability to score uh, DFC's equity financing in ways that um, allow it to, to advance that, I think has held up how much equity financing DFC is able to do. Um, Congress can look at uh, the scoring issue in a number of different ways. For example, the president's budget, I believe, has requested um, a revolving fund of uh, $2 billion to be able to put towards equity financing, um, $2 billion in mandatory uh, spending, um, or changing the scoring to be consistent with how, for, for example, um, other development finance institutions score equity would enable DFC to be more forward-leaning in this area. I appreciate that, and I, I hope that um, this committee and our colleagues will get this done as quickly as possible, because I think it, it hinders DFC from being able to maximize uh, its resources. Uh, there's a, a vote on now, uh, so I'm going to turn it over to Senator Ricketts for questioning. I'm going to turn the gavel uh, over to Senator Kane or Senator Menendez, whoever wants to. <laughs> Senator Kane. Great. Thank you very much. Uh, first of all, to all of our uh, folks here, I want to say thank you for your service to our country and especially our career uh, Foreign Service people, I know that you all have sacrificed to be able to serve our great nation. It involves a lot. You've put your families through a lot. I just want to say thank you very much. As a governor who went on a lot of trade missions, I very much appreciated all the help I got when I was at the embassy. So I uh, just have nothing but the highest respect for you. What I'd like to talk about is Djibouti. In 2017, Djibouti became the first country to host a People's Republic of China military base outside, obviously, the People's Republic itself. And earlier this year, it was announced that Djibouti had reached an agreement with the People's Republic of China for a billion dollars to have a spaceport in that country. And this is obviously a part of the PRC's larger effort to commercialize space, but also to extend its Belt and Road Initiative. And of course, there's two concerning things about this. One. Djibouti is already heavily in debt to the People's Republic of China to the tune of about a billion dollars. It represents about 43% of its GDP and puts them at risk to be a part of what we've seen consistently around the world from the People's Republic of China, this debt trap. But perhaps more concerningly, at least for the United States, I'm going to read you from the DNI's 2023 threat assessment, said that China is steadily progressing toward its goal of becoming a world-class space leader with the intent to match or surpass the United States by the year 2045. It continues counter space operations will be integral to potential PLA military campaigns and China has counter space weapons capabilities intended to target the U.S. and our allies. One of the fears with this spaceport outside the People's Republic of China is they will use that to sidestep or outright reject international space rules with regard to how we do this. And of course, this matter is incredibly important to all of us from using ATMs to harvesting our food, we all rely on sat satellite technology. In my home state of Nebraska, for example, um, we rely heavily on satellite technology to run our um, harvesting machines, the tractors, and so forth. In fact, one farmer told one of my staff members that if it wasn't for satellite technology, he was worried that his equipment would be useless. So 
Ambassador Kirsch, let's talk about, do you believe that the Space Launch Facility, uh, will this push Djibouti more into this debt, tra debt trap uh, that the PRC has? Oh, thank you for that, raising that important issue, Senator. Um, you are absolutely correct that there was a base established, their first military base was established in 2017, and there has been a deal on the table for this $1 billion spaceport that you reference. Um, as Secretary Blinken has said, uh, China represents the most co consequential geopolitical challenge um, of our time, and as diplomats, we're going to be facing this around the globe. In terms of the spaceport, uh, it's clear that Africans, including the Djiboutians, have an aspiration to develop further in the space field as well as the advanced technology field. Um, as recognized during the African Leaders Summit this past uh, December, the U.S. recognized that interest and held the first U.S. Africa Space Forum to meet together to discuss these very issues that you are raising. Um, and if confirmed, I would certainly work closely with the Djiboutians to make sure that we identify ways for them to uh, act responsibly in this field uh, here on Earth so that we can make sure that our space is free and, and remains that way. What can we do to incentivize uh, Djibouti from staying away from these risky debt deals. What can the United States, what more can we do? Well, I think one of the best ways we can uh, incentivize them away from uh, uh, delving into these areas is to engage our own private sector. And, and that is something, if confirmed, I would be very much interested in doing. And um, I'm happy to be sitting here with my co-panelist who uh, may be placed at the DFC because I think that is one of the good tools that we are able to use to leverage our U.S. businesses overseas. Um, we have other U.S. government agency tools also that we can be using, including the XM and USTDA. But really, I think we need to look at uh, engaging our private sector to give them opportunities to uh, compete. Why do you think the PRC selected Djibouti for the spaceport facility? Well, it's an interesting question. I think if you actually look at some of the specifics of it, it doesn't actually give the Chinese much of an advantage in terms of where it is and in compared to what they have within their own country. Um, it, it is as you identified, the Djiboutians are heavily debt reliant on China. Um, they and this is uh, something that I, we will keep a very close eye on. What can we do to encourage Djibouti to ratify space law treaties so that this can't be used as a loophole by the People's Republic of China? Well, that is something, if confirmed, I would uh, be talking to them on a regular basis about. That is something that we would have to um, have regular conversations Great. about. Right, well, thank you, Ambassador. I appreciate it. Mr. Chairman. Chairman Menendez. Uh, thank you, Mr. Chairman, and, and to Senator Van Hollen for um, presiding uh, over these nominations. Uh, it's an important task that we ask all of our members on both sides of the aisle to engage in, so I appreciate uh, your willingness to do it. Uh, let me congratulate all the nominees before us today. We want to thank you and your families for your commitment to service to our country because it really truly is a family affair. And so we appreciate uh, your willingness to serve the nation. These are critical posts that we need to carry out U.S. foreign policy abroad, and I hope we uh, will be able to work through your nominations, both at the committee and on the floor, in a reasonable time so we can get you to the posts. Uh, let me go to just a couple of questions. Mr. Libby, uh, one of the most challenging issues on the ongoing peace talks between Armenia and Azerbaijan is the rights and security for the people of Nagorno-Karabakh. I have deep concerns that without robust international guarantees, the people of Nagorno-Karabakh will be extremely vulnerable. 
What do you see as the different possible outcomes for the people of Nagorno-Karabakh? And do you share my concerns about their physical safety as well as their protection for their cultural rights? Mr. Chairman, thanks for the question. Um, I do share your concerns about uh, the future of that region, including the people in Nagorno-Karabakh. Um, that's why I think Secretary Blinken has really put his shoulder to the wheel to try and come up with and facilitate a settlement. Uh, and the good news is that, uh, for the moment at least, all of the parties uh, seem to be engaging and engaging seriously. It's not going to be easy, but uh, a settlement that, uh, that uh, we want to reach and we want to help them reach is one that um, addresses issues of sovereignty, rights and security for all the people in the region, and territorial integrity. Um, with regard to the situation of Nagorno-Karabakh, um, I don't necessarily want to prejudice what that looks like. That's a matter for the parties to decide. Uh, but uh, a situation in which their rights and securities have not been considered or are not factored in and, and taken care of in some fashion uh, strikes me as something that would not be durable. It's for the parties to decide, but we clearly have a role in trying to advocate uh, the process forward. I, I am deeply concerned by the ongoing blockade of Nagorno-Karabakh, which severely limits the basic goods and aid entering the region. Azerbaijan's more than 180-day blockade has threatened famine for the local Armenian population, causing rationing, resulting in pharmacies running out of medicine. Will you publicly condemn the blockade today and unequivocally urge Aliyev to open the Lachin Corridor to normal traffic? Sir, the U.S. position on this has been, uh, it really consists of sort of three elements. Uh, and the U.S. has criticized um, un any unilateral action that hurts trusts, raises risks, or damages people's safety and security. Uh, the way to approach this is really uh, three elements. First, over the short term, that's to monitor the situation and continue our calls and pressure for the restoration of civilian and commercial traffic into and out of the territory. In the medium term, we're looking at questions of assistance. Um, we don't have access to the territory at the moment, but my understanding is that the U.S. government has already put forward $21 million of food assistance, medicine, medevac, and family reunification assistance. That's a medium-term solution or a medium-term tool to address it. But the long-term really is going to be in the context of a settlement, an agreement between all the parties that stipulates how the rights and securities of everyone in the region are. Well, uh, in, let, me just say, region let me just say protected. we can monitor it while people die. That's not satisfactory to me. If people are dying, that's a big problem and we need to take well, action. People are dying. Yeah, this is why. So I, I, I urge you uh, to engage with the department uh, in a more forceful, forthright uh, response uh, because, uh, you know, having a corridor closed to humanitarian assistance, even our humanitarian assistance, is having difficulty getting in. That's because Aliyev. And so, you know, you're going to be nominated, you're nominated, you're going to be going, if confirmed, to a, a challenging post. Uh, but the fact that it's challenging doesn't mean that the United States should not be speaking out uh, for the basic uh, human rights uh, uh, principles that we observe globally. And I hope you'll be a vigorous voice in that regard. I'm going to send you some follow-up questions. I'd like to see your answers to them. For sure, Senator. Uh, Ms. Biswal, uh, in the President's FY24 budget request, there's a proposal for $2 billion to create a new revolving fund for equity investments at the DFC. While I agree that the DFC's ability to deploy equity is an effective yet underutilized tool for us to compete with China around the world, many of my colleagues have expressed concerns with pursuing this revolving fund through mandatory spending and outside the normal 
discretionary appropriations process. Now, I recognize you're not at the DFC yet, uh, but how important is this mandatory spending proposal to the DFC's strategic plans? Mr. Chairman, uh, thank you for that question. I think um, there are many different ways in which Congress may choose to address the issue of equity uh, financing at DFC, uh, whether it is through a um, change to the scoring, whether it is through creating uh, the revolving fund as is in the president's budget request, or, or um, the total amount of uh, exposure allowed to DFC to be able to lean in more to equity financing. I, if confirmed, would be willing uh, to work with Congress to determine the most appropriate measure that Congress would feel comfortable with in order to enable uh, DFC. What, what happens, whether it's the mandatory funding that I understand the administration is seeking uh, or some other uh, process that you suggest, if we're not able to get DFC's equity tools off the ground? Uh, Mr. Chairman, I believe DFC will continue to advance uh, financing to the best of its abilities with the tools that it does possess. I believe if we find a way around the equity challenges, it will allow DFC to lean in much more, particularly in, um, in, in, in more high-risk environments which are unable to uh, take on additional debt financing which I think is uh, commensurate with the uh, intent of DFC uh, that the Build Act had. had well, I, I don't want to overstay my welcome here. Uh, I'm going to follow up. I know. I, uh, can I? Yes. Oh, okay. All right. Because, you know, my dear and distinguished colleague often comes to these hearings. He doesn't get to ask this question in a timely fashion. So I don't want to impinge upon it. Can I have another minute? Thank you. All right. Development finance is an important tool to uh, realize U.S. foreign policy objectives. And they can be especially effective in countering the malign influence of China and other adverse nations. Most developing countries would prefer to work with the U.S. and our private sector partners as opposed to the PRC's predatory development financial institutions. The DFC's strategic foreign policy objectives and focus on advancing development are mutually reinforcing and part of your role, if confirmed, to evaluate and articulate how the DFC is selecting deals that achieve both outcomes. So this is why I'm getting into how we're going to fund the DFC, because in part that will speak to what we're going to be able to do. How will you work within DFC's balanced development and strategic outcomes to its investments? Uh, Mr. Chairman, I believe the dual mandate that uh, Congress uh, uh, imbued DFC with to both advance our uh, strategic goals and objectives and to ensure development impact uh, are, are very important and mutually reinforcing. Uh, if confirmed, I would work uh, drawing upon my own experience working both within the State Department uh, and at USAID uh, to help uh, identify ways in which we can advance development impact uh, in ways that are aligned with our very important uh, strategic goals and objectives, uh, particularly as we seek to provide a more compelling alternative to the state capital provided by some of our strategic competitors, which does not uh, um, often uh, advance the interests of the countries uh, which it is, uh, it is financing, unlike Final our programs. How do you believe DFC's proposed reorganization will achieve that dual mandate? Uh, Mr. Chairman, um, if confirmed, I would work with DFC to uh, 
um, help align the organization around the mandates that have been conferred upon it by Congress. As we have seen uh, DFC transition from OPIC to the Development Finance Corporation increase in both its budget and its staff, um, I believe there is an effort underway to look at what kind of realignment internally will help it better achieve its mission and mandate. And if confirmed, I look forward to working to further that process. Now we need DFC to be a, play a bigger role if we're going to compete with China. Uh, I have questions uh, for both you, uh, for Mr. Libby, as well as the other nominees. Uh, as I always say at our hearings when I preside over them, I would urge you to answer them expeditiously when you get them and fully, because if not, what will happen is a member will come back and say, you know, you really didn't give me an answer. So up front, I want you to know that when you get questions, you should answer it fully and expeditiously, because then we can consider you at a business meeting. Thank you, and thank you, Senator Romney, for your courtesy. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Um, and, I, and I want to pursue the uh, discussion which uh, Chairman Menendez began with regards to the DFC. Um, I, I have watched, uh, if you will, through business lens, uh, economic lens, as China has carried out uh, what many would consider a brilliant strategy of investing in uh, critical minerals and materials that are essential for the uh, uh, technologies of, of today and tomorrow. And, uh, and their uh, Belt and Road has not been randomly um, carried out, uh, providing opportunities for development, but instead has been focused on securing those resources, such as buying mines, then putting in place rail lines that take the materials from that mine to, the, to a port, then buying the port uh, to make sure that they can have access to take those materials to China. Uh, it's, a, uh, it, it's a series of actions which uh, would probably be illegal for a corporation to take under U.S. law, but they're not subject to U.S. law. And uh, we, we looked at DFC to counter this, although with a fraction of the resources that China has already employed, and also historically with less focus on our strategic objectives <clears throat> and more on simply development and, and helping lift people out of poverty, a, a noble goal in and of itself. But, but I wonder if you could expand on the extent to which you believe it is an important role for DFC uh, to, uh, to pursue America's economic interests and strategic interests <clears throat> in securing for us many of the minerals and resources that are necessary to be competitive. Thank you, Senator. I do believe that um, not only is it critically important for the United States, but it's important for the global community that there not be a monopolistic uh, reliance on any single actor for critical minerals, critical um, and essential supply chains. And I think uh, if confirmed, I would want to work with DFC uh, to continue to support uh, um, the diversification of important supply chains to invest in projects that build capacity on critical minerals uh, and build uh, the ability of nations to uh, carry out um, trade in those minerals in multiple different directions. I believe that DFC is already doing some important work in that respect, uh, not only in, uh, in, in Africa, but also uh, um, a nickel mine in Brazil that DFC is working with in parts of Asia, et cetera. And if confirmed, Senator, I would want to continue to uh, lean into that direction as well. 
I, I would hope that, that as you consider various alternatives, and I'm sure the list of projects that you might invest in is enormously long, that, that in carrying out those evaluations and the, the selection of various projects, that, that in each write-up there is an element that deals with um, <clears throat> the strategic, either military or economic um, or political interests of, of the United States of America. Uh, do you agree with that? I do, Senator, and I do think that as we are advancing those strategic objectives, they are very much aligned with the development impact of the projects that we are financing, and I would want to showcase that as well. Uh, Mr. Kagan, with regards to, uh, to Malaysia, thank you for those, uh, those uh, responses. Uh, with, with regards to Malaysia, uh, what is their, their feeling right now? I know we, we in this country take great pride in the fact that we have lots of friends and uh, our foes around the world don't have a lot of friends. But I would submit that one of the reasons we have so many friends is because we've been the superpower, the sole superpower. And when there become alternatives, uh, and in fact, in a region where we may not, might not even be the strongest, that friendship uh, ends up being strained. Uh, what, what is your sense now of the Malaysian uh, people, as well as its government, in terms of their um, uh, sentiment with regards to the U.S. and with regards to, to uh, the, uh, the PRC? Thank you very much for that question, Senator. I think that you've put your finger on what is our broader challenge across the region, and I think certainly in Malaysia, and that is that there is a great reservoir of goodwill towards the United States. At least when I served there from 2014 to 2017, I was constantly struck at the web of connections and web of ties that we have uh, between our peoples and how powerful they are. Uh, and the U.S. has been a very important investor and a very important trading partner in Malaysia. And I think the quality of U.S. investment in Malaysia has had a particular impact. In particular, the amount of training, the amount of, of investment that American companies have made in developing their staff. And you see that in the number of companies that have been started by people who used to work at U.S. companies. Um, but at the same time, there's no question that they are looking to see what we can do now. And I think that they, my experience has been that they are eager to do more with the United States, um, but at the same time that they are looking to other opportunities in the region and they're open to the significant inflows of investment and trade with China. That creates a challenge for us. I think that we can meet that challenge by being engaged and if confirmed, I would want to help lead that uh, from the position of US Ambassador to Malaysia. But look, we're going, to be, we're going to be working very hard at this for a long time to come. I think that we're going to need to be flexible, we're going to need to be engaged, and we're going to need to work with our allies and partners to strengthen our hand as we try and meet these challenges. Thank you, sir. Thank you. Mr. Chairman? Thank you, Senator Romney. And Senator Kane. thank you for spelling me in the chair for a little while. Absolutely. Thank you, Senator Van Hollen. And to all of the nominees, uh, congratulations. You're well-suited for your positions. Um, Mr. Levy, let me start with you. I just want to follow up a little bit on Senator Menendez with respect to uh, Nagano-Karbach and the Lechen Corridor being closed. You, you talked about the, the uh, peace process, the, the path forward as having a short, medium, and long-term component, which we completely get. My worry, though, is the closure of the corridor should definitely be on the short term, uh, not for resolution of the long-term issues because it strands 120,000 ethnic Armenians without access to medical care, gasoline, food. The U.S. has been pretty full-throated in condemning the closure of administrator power with USAID, other U.S. officials, UNICEF, UN agencies have called for it to be open. 
And I just would want your commitment that you will continue that clear U.S. message that however it takes to get us to a medium and long-term solution, the closure of this Lachin corridor by the uh, Azerbaijani activists, likely with the backing of the Azerbaijan government, is a, is a clear and present challenge to those citizens, and we should be doing all we can to expeditiously seek its reopening. Do you agree with me on that? Yes, Senator, I do, and thank you for that question. Um, that's been a strong point uh, by the administration, as you noted, by administrator, administrator power, and I share that sense of urgency. We've got to solve that problem and get traffic flowing again. I absolutely agree with that, sir. Thank you very much. Um, Mr. Kagan, I want to ask you um, a question dealing with a, an issue that's important in Malaysia, but also very important in Virginia, and it deals with the Chinese treatment of uh, Uyghurs. Um, the Malaysian Prime Minister Ibrahim has refrained from publicly criticizing China on the Uyghur genocide, but Malaysia has been a rare Muslim-majority country that has been granting safe passage to Uyghurs and refusing to extradite them back to China. Virginia is home of one of the largest Uyghur American communities in the U.S., and many of those families have family members in the Uyghur area of China who are being persecuted. We've been working with a number of Virginia families because their relatives have been unjustly imprisoned by the Chinese Communist Party simply for being Uyghur. The, those the CCP's widely documented genocide against Uyghurs and other ethnic and religious minority groups in Xinjiang remains a, a clear affront to human rights. You've been in, in Kuala Lumpur uh, in the past. You know it well. Uh, Malaysia does appear more willing than most Muslim countries to offer support to Uyghurs escaping persecution from the CCP. Uh, what, how, what do you attribute that to, and what more can we do to support the Malaysian government in those humanitarian efforts? Thank you very much for your question, Senator. And I want to start off by just saying I was remiss in not thanking you earlier for your very kind introduction, which I appreciate very much. Um, I think that there's a couple of things that you've put your fingers on. I think one is that Malaysia has a long history of tolerance and support for victims of political violence and for refugees. I'm going back to the large numbers of Vietnamese about people who were harbored in Malaysia, and many of whom then came on to the United States from there. Um, I think that there is also no question that Malaysians are you know, very sensitive to the dynamics of oppression of Muslims around the world. Uh, and I think that they are aware of the genocide and the repression and human rights abuses against Uyghurs. So I think that this is an area where, you know, if confirmed, I would want to do a couple of things. One is work with the Malaysian government. But I think that on this, in this, it's also very important to work with Malaysian civil society to promote greater awareness and understanding of what is happening. And I think that we are lucky that in Malaysia, there is a partner that isn't turning a blind eye to the terrible things that are happening in Xinjiang. Thank you, Senator. I, th I think you're right. We're lucky to have a partner that recognizes that. There's, there's an awful lot of backsliding in the world against protection of those who are persecuted for human rights reasons. And there's also, if not backsliding, uh, often a, a coldly business calculation that we could stand up for values, but it might cost us in other ways. And so people aren't willing to stand up for values. Governments aren't willing to stand up. And so since Malaysia has a history of doing this, that, that needs to not only be encouraged, but even spotlit so that nations around the world understand the value that they're providing. The last thing I'll just say, Ms. Biswell, the, um, 
OIG issued a report in uh, FY 2023 with sort of four top management challenges for your agency. And they, they aren't really management challenges in the sense of, you know, big problems. I think morale was pretty high. But a new agency getting off the ground that's, you know, grappling with making the structure really work. And I just would like your commitment. I think that OIG report was a solid one. Uh, and I would just like your commitment that you would take that very seriously in working with this new agency to help it be all it can be. Yes, Senator, you absolutely have that commitment, and I, uh, if confirmed, intend to focus quite a bit on the management uh, aspects of the job. Great. Thank you so much. Thanks to all the witnesses. Yield back. Thank you, Senator Kane. Senator Romney. Uh, Mr. Libby, um, uh, I'm interested in your, your perspective of the uh, people of Azerbaijan and how uh, in the region there is a reaction to uh, Russia's invasion in Ukraine, whether that's changed public opinion, whether that's changed political uh, sentiment there, uh, perspective of the government, uh, and, and, and uh, what you see in terms of that dynamic. Thanks, Senator. That's one of the things that makes this uh, region so fascinating and so critically important. Azerbaijan is, uh, to my knowledge, the only country that borders both Russia and Iran, and so it sits right smack in the middle uh, of a strategic region and its, uh, and its role in the former Soviet space is obviously very important. Um, Azerbaijan has uh, had an interesting balancing act to play, um, but they have been quite helpful with regard to uh, supporting Ukraine, uh, fuel, fuel, food assistance, and even after this dam was destroyed last week, sending in new packages of aid. Uh, they voted for the UN General Assembly resolution condemning the invasion and, and reaffirming Ukraine's territorial integrity. Um, this is an interesting and, and fairly forward-leaning place for a country uh, in the former Soviet space. Uh, if I'm confirmed, I think part of my job is going to be to try and get Azerbaijan further down that track. Um, obviously, there's little ties of kinship and ties of trade and so forth, but Azerbaijan has uh, its own potential role as a conduit, as an energy source, and as a counterbalance to Russian influence in the region, and that's one of the reasons that makes it so important. Thank you, Mr. Libby. Uh, Mr. Aaron, uh, help me understand uh, what it means to be uh, uh, engaged in a free association with the United States for Palau. What, what does that mean to us? What does that mean to them? And, and are they uh, broadly satisfied with that relationship at this point, or, or is there uh, some sentiment of concern? Uh, thank you, Senator Romney, for, for the question. The uh, Secretary, I referred to what Secretary Blinken said a couple weeks ago when he was in Port Moresby. The uh, Compacts of Free Association that we have with all three uh, FAS states is the bedrock of our engagement uh, in the Pacific. And I think in the Palau context, it, that couldn't be more true. Uh, like I said in my opening statement, when we signed the agreement, the review agreement just a few weeks ago, uh, President Whip said, you know, God bless Palau, God bless the United States of America, God bless us all. This is the, not only is it, is it the framework for our relations for the next 20 years and beyond, it's also a powerful symbol of the strength of the relationship uh, for the United States, uh, uh, the people of the United States and Palau, and for any adversaries in the region who uh, want to question uh, how strong our relations are. Yeah, thank you. Um, Ambassador Kirsch, uh, my understanding is that uh, Djibouti has recently uh, agreed to allow China to build an enormous uh, a facility in the port to accommodate uh, an aircraft carrier or, or uh, substantial military resources that, that China might have. Um, clearly, uh, the, the PRC is making a play uh, to, uh, to have a greater and greater influence in, in Djibouti. Uh, 
what what should we be doing? Um, uh, and, and I know there's only so much an ambassador can do, and, and you want to have relationships with the people there and you want to interact with them, but do we need to be making far more private sector investments? Do we need to have more of an industrial policy uh, where, where we're investing in projects uh, uh, in that country ourselves to be more competitive? Uh, what, what actions do we need to take uh, to make sure that this uh, key player at the uh, gateway to the Red Sea uh, remains a, a friendly nation? Thank you, Senator Romney, for raising that very critical question. Uh, I would like to uh, identify several things that in my current role as ambassador to Mauritania we are working on because I think we do need to look at ways that we can uh, push back against China. For example, in Mauritania, we have just launched a new project to help the Mauritanians combat illegal, unregulated, and unreported fishing done by the PRC in their offshore waters, which robs Mauritania really of one of their prime natural resources. Uh, if confirmed, I would seek to do similar, uh, pursue similar avenues, but I think the U.S. has a really good story to tell um, and about what we bring to the table, our transparency, our values, uh, working with civil society, listening and learning from our partners. In Djibouti in particular, we are working together with them uh, to achieve their, uh, as stated, economic development goals, which seek to develop their human capital and create jobs. We have, uh, through our USAID colleagues there right now, we are working on several large programs in order to do just that. We are helping them do job creation as well as youth employment through workforce development programs, energy, education, and health programming. Um, we are also providing them with very robust security assistance in addition to our base. They have the only bilateral FMF allocation on the continent of Africa, um, and we provide them with other state and DOD security assistance as well. Um, but again, as, as you noted, we should probably also lean into engaging our private sector using the tools that we have, such as the Development Finance Corps, XM, USTDA, to really uh, bring our private sector into that market as well. And if confirmed, I would seek to uh, leverage all of those tools. Thank you, Senator. Senator Duckworth. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. I'd like to start by thanking all of our nominees for your lifelong dedication to public service and for making yourself available today. Uh, I'm going to start with Ms. Biswal. Um, I have long argued that in order to make the strategic challenge of the People's Republic of China, we need to address the needs of our partners and allies around the world. As the development financing arm of the United States, the DFC plays a critical role in this effort. Nowhere is this more true than in Southeast Asia, and in particular mainland Southeast Asia, where the Belt and Road Initiative has financed billions of dollars for railroads, ports, and industrial projects. On my regular visits to the region, I repeatedly hear about a desire for more U.S. engagement and for alternatives to PRC financing. Uh, for major infrastructure projects. How do you assess the initial success of the, the DFC in engaging in this area, and what are your priorities in ensuring that the United States is competitive with the PRC in the infrastructure space in Southeast Asia? Uh, Senator Duckworth, thank you so much for that question. I agree wholeheartedly with you that uh, this region is in, in extraordinarily important, uh, and that 
a priority for DFC. I believe uh, to date DFC um, has uh, uh, projects uh, um, nearly six billion in financing uh, in the in the Indo-Pacific region. Um, if confirmed, I would look to see how we can further scale up our uh, programs, our project financing, uh, particularly with respect to Southeast Asia and the nations uh, um, of mainland Southeast Asia. I do believe that there are many opportunities uh, with a robust uh, private sector uh, to be able to uh, address core core priorities, including in energy security, in telecommunications, uh, in, uh, in building private enterprise, and I look forward to working with you if confirmed um, in understanding your priorities on these uh, in this region as well. Thank you. Um, well, following up on that, you know, the Blue Dot Network. The Blue Dot Network is, is a joint project, the United States, Japan, and Australia that supports investment in high-quality infrastructure projects around the world. I think that's a great example for our regional, how our regional partners can increase our region and infrastructure area. It doesn't have to be all United States. I think our partners are important as well. Is there more that the DFC can do to leverage our ability to convene allies to advance our goals globally and in the Indo-Pacific specifically? And I'm looking to Japan and South Korea, for example. Uh, Senator, I know uh, that DFC has already um, um, uh, created uh, trilateral frameworks and agreements to work with Japan and Australia. Uh, they have a quad framework through which they are working with um, Australia, Japan, and India in the region. Um, and I know that there are uh, there's a desire to be able to do additional programming with, for example, Taiwan. And if confirmed, I would look to see how we can further enhance our partnership and collaboration uh, including with South Korea, uh, with um, multilateral institutions as well, and uh, leverage the investments of uh, partners and allies uh, to advance financing in the region. Thank you. Thank you. Um, I'd like to return to Malaysia a little bit. Um, I know we've talked a little bit already, but Mr. Kagan, as you well know, <clears throat> excuse me, economic and trade issues and climate change are major concerns for many of our Indo-Pacific partners. Um, according to the 2023 ASEAN survey carried out by Singapore's ICES Yusuf Ishak Institute, Malaysian respondents cited the economy and climate change as their top two concerns. Moreover, 60% expressed concerns about the growing economic influence of the PRC. But at the same time, when those same respondents were asked whether uh, the administration's premier economic initiative, the Indo-Pacific Economic Forum, the IPEF, would be beneficial to Malaysia, 60% of the respondents answered either unsure or no. Mr. Kagan, how do you assess current US efforts to engage Southeast Asia and Malaysia in particular in the economic realm? What economic initiatives would you prioritize if confirmed? Thank you very much, Senator Duckworth. And I think it's an excellent question and it's one that is a major challenge for the administration, but one that we have put considerable effort into trying to address. I mean, one element, and we see this here with Nisha, um, is DFC. Um, DFC is a very, very important tool and one that I think we can use more in the region as uh, we expand the capacities that it has. I think another one, obviously, is the Indo-Pacific Economic uh, Framework, the um, IPEF, which you referred to. Um, you know, I totally take the point that many, that you know, a significant percentage of folks in Malaysia were either unaware of it or didn't think it would be positive. Uh, I think part of that is because it is very new. 
and I think that the effort that, it, that we're trying to do with IPEF is to address challenges the traditional trade uh, approaches haven't always addressed. The kinds of challenges that we saw come to the fore during the pandemic, where we realized that over-dependence on supply chains that run through one area um, have it, their own problems completely separate from whatever political issues are involved. And so I think that um, IPEF is trying to address in four key areas um, things which we think really are important to the region. And, you know, clearly it is not yet well known enough. And I think the jury is out in Malaysia in terms of the impact. On the other hand, Malaysia was one of the partners that did sign on to Pillar 2, the supply chain pillar, which was brought to conclusion um, in Detroit several weeks ago. And I think that is a sign that Malaysia recognizes their significant opportunities. So if confirmed, I would want to keep using the tools that we have, the strengthened uh, DFC, IPEF, engagement by other U.S. government agencies, um, XM, uh, USAID, though they don't do things directly in Malaysia, but I think their efforts in the region are of value to the region and to ASEAN, of which Malaysia is a member. And I think we would want, if confirmed, to keep pushing forward in those areas to bet, so that the region better understands the value of economic engagement with the United States and understands that, that we are seeking an affirmative agenda on economic engagement that tries to address the region and their concerns concerns in ways that are valuable for them. I think your mentioning of ASEAN is really important because so many of the powerful players within ASEAN have signed on to IPEF. Uh, uh, and, and I think that's a good way forward. Thank you. I yield back, Mr. Chairman. Well, I'm over uh, thank, time. You, uh, th thank you, Senator uh, Duckworth. Um, uh, I, as I went over to vote, my, my team uh, kept me posted on different questions that would be, had been asked. So let me just say uh, to you, Mr. Libby, I associate myself with the questions of uh, Senator Menendez. I was going to ask you about the Lanchin Corridor and how you can help resolve that pretty desperate situation as part of the broader effort you said uh, with respect to Armenia and Azerbaijan. Um, Senator Romney and others uh, touched on the Djibouti issue. Um, Obviously, we have an important presence there, but so does the PRC, and obviously trying to uh, reconcile those uh, in a way that serves our interests is, is a priority. I, I do have one last uh, question for uh, Mr. Uh, Eichenreich, and before I ask it, and I, Senator Romney has to leave, um, I do want to thank your wife, Rachel, uh, who you introduced, uh, who is in consular affairs, as you know, but just so others know, and who was pivotal in helping an 89-year-old constituent of mine from Maryland uh, get out of Sudan during the violence. So let me thank uh, you for your efforts uh, there. Um, so here's the question regarding um, uh, uh, Palau. And I just, I should say that I just uh, gathered with a couple of my colleagues, some from this committee and others, uh, at a meeting that was convened by the ambassadors of Australia and New Zealand, uh, together with Senator Schatz and others, um, convened with a lot of the Pacific Island country ambassadors. Um, and some had representatives that served in the United States up but up at the United Nations. Uh, and it was a great turnout. We had a great meeting. And I think that the Biden administration is doing a good job in signaling the United States wants to engage much, um, much more um, with, with the Pacific Island countries. Uh, and you're going to, of course, play an important role uh, in that effort, uh, if confirmed as the ambassador uh, to plow. My, my colleagues have covered the issue of the, the compact. Uh, but you know, one of the issues that comes up constantly with some of the Pacific uh, Island countries 
has to do with uh, encroachment on their EEZs um, and their fishing rights uh, and the fact that uh, many in the region, including the PRC, don't respect uh, their sovereignty, whereas the United States stands for a free and open uh, Pacific Ocean and respect for sovereignty. Could you comment a little bit on what we can do to help Palau, in particular, uh, defend their fisheries uh, against incursions from others? These are countries that don't have a lot of resources, and, and to what extent is that part of our effort under the compact? Uh, thank you, uh, Mr. Chairman, uh, for the question. Let me uh, first say I'm very proud of my wife. She's uh, been a, a, a wonderful uh, consular officer for about 15 years now, and uh, not only has she helped your constituent, I know she's uh, helped hundreds, if not thousands, of people um, get out of Sudan and Ethiopia and Afghanistan and other places. Very, very proud of her. Um, in terms of uh, Palau and uh, uh, PRC incursions and all, uh, Palau is no stranger to... Uh, PRC's uh, aggressive and coercive activities, in addition to the uh, illegal incursions into their exclusive economic zones, as you mentioned, in the IUU fishing, uh, Palau has been uh, the victim of uh, economic coercion, with China turning off all tourism uh, heading to, to Palau. And uh, Chinese economic activities in Palau uh, have brought allegations of cyber crime, drug and human trafficking, and uh, and corruption and, and money laundering. Um, what we can do to help uh, Palau in terms of the uh, EZ and IUU um, issues is uh, one, to help Palau build its own capacity and we have uh, Coast Guard programs in place both uh, to help with maritime domain awareness and the ship rider program in place. USAID has active programs to help um, with IUU fishing more on the uh, coastal fisheries management um, side. We also need to work with partners in the region, Japan, Republic of Korea, Australia. They're all interested in contributing to this, uh, to, to solving uh, this issue. And then there's also the international effort, the Port States uh, Measures Agreement. And the United States is trying to help countries like Palau uh, become members and become active. And that's an international effort to, to end IUU fishing. Thank you. Um, thank all of you for your testimony today. Uh, the record will be open into the close of business tomorrow, uh, June 14th, and this hearing is now adjourned. Thank you all.